0: This hearing will come to order. Let me thank Ambassador Thomas Greenfield and Administrator Power for appearing before our committee as we examine one of the most fundamental and far-reaching threats the world faces today, which is global food security. We must be crystal clear about what is at stake. Nearly 828 million people are at grave risk of hunger and disease, with many at risk of outright starvation. While far more complex than a land war or terrorist attack, the global food security crisis represents the clearest threat to global peace and security we have seen in decades. Ruthless autocrats, militias, terrorist organizations have always used food as a weapon of war, and Vladimir Putin is no different. Ukraine has long been considered a critical breadbasket of the world. Disrupting food shipments and promoting a disinformation campaign about Ukraine's role in the resulting food crisis have been a deliberate byproduct of Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion in February. Russian forces occupied farms. They destroyed tractors and combines. They blockaded ports and bombed rail lines. The war has decimated three seasons of Ukrainian grain production. But we have to remember that the resulting food security crisis was not a byproduct of Russian aggression. Starvation is part of their strategy. In April, the deputy of the Russian Security Council openly admitted food was the Kremlin's, quote, silent but menacing, close quote, weapon. And now Putin is amplifying the horrific effects of the war in Ukraine, accelerating global hunger as leverage for sanctions relief. Prior to Putin's invasion, 26 countries, many of them in the Middle East and across Africa, relied on Russia and Ukraine for wheat imports, but Putin just poured jet fuel on that fire. From climate change and natural disasters to supply chain bottlenecks and the COVID pandemic, this crisis has been building for some time. Over the last two years, there has been an alarming 200% rise in people who go to sleep hungry and desperate, unsure where their family's next meal, will come from, who will leave their homes in search of food, who will do what they must to survive. If we do not collectively respond, the global hunger crisis will deepen conflicts and further destabilize fragile regions of the world that we are already struggling. In the Horn of Africa, an unprecedented three failed rainy seasons endangers the lives of 21 million people. Hundreds of thousands face starvation in Somalia alone. In Central America, the dry corridor spanning from Panama to southern Mexico threatens the livelihoods of millions and is one of the core drivers of forced migration. But we are also not immune from these threats here in the United States. Russia's war in Ukraine is a key factor behind historic levels of price inflation for fuel and food in the United States. Most homes across America are feeling the squeeze, with low-income households hit the hardest. The United States has an absolutely critical role to play combating this global crisis. Congress has taken action in a bipartisan manner, passing the recent $5 billion Ukraine emergency supplemental package to get food aid and agricultural support to parts of the world impacted directly by Russia's reckless actions. We need to make sure the money we've appropriated is spent expeditiously and responsibly so that we can help those who need it the most. But we also need to recognize that this is a political crisis and to solve it, we'll need a political solution with American diplomacy leading the way. This hearing will examine what the United States must do to prevent the crisis from overwhelming the world. And I look forward to hearing more from our witnesses today on what actions the Biden administration is taking to combat the underlying drivers of food insecurity. How are you using the recently uh, emergency supplemental funds provided by Congress? What do you need from Congress to achieve our national security and humanitarian goals? To get a better understanding of our diplomatic efforts, I want to hear more about the ways in which we're tackling this problem through close collaboration with our allies and friends who share our concerns. And finally, I hope you'll talk about the ways we can continue to keep the pressure on Russia for their inhumane and criminal actions. We must do better to combat Russia's successful disinformation campaigns blaming Ukraine and anyone else for Putin's own starvation campaigns. With that, may we turn to the ranking member for his opening statement. Senator Rich.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, No nation on earth has done more to reduce global hunger and stimulate agriculture-led economic growth than the United States of America. It was American grit and ingenuity that spurred a green revolution back in the 1950s and 60s, which transformed global agriculture, reduced poverty, and ultimately saved billions of lives. Today, through Feed the Future, we are trying to amplify that progress by helping people increase yields, gain access to markets, and grow their way out of poverty so they can secure the food and nutrition their families need to survive and thrive. I'm proud of uh, the work America has done and the contributions my state have made to it. I uh, also am proud of the work we've done to get emergency food aid to people in their hour of need. Here again, no nation on earth has been more committed to helping avert starvation. Food security is national security. As we saw during the Arab Spring and in places like Sri Lanka today, hunger is a destabilizing force that brings people to the streets and sends leaders into exile. And so it is in our interest to respond, first by providing emergency assistance when a word it is needed most, then helping people transition away from dependence and towards self-reliance. It is in America's best interest. The Global Food Security Act provides a roadmap for this. I have joined forces with Senator Casey to reauthorize it this year and look forward to working with our co- our colleagues to ensure it moves quickly, seamlessly and unburdened by additional mandates. It would be impossible to talk about the state of global food security today without focusing on Russia's pro- unprovoked war in Ukraine. Let's be clear. This isn't a crisis. It's a brutal unprovoked war that has taken a massive toll, not just on Ukraine and Europe, but on the entire world. In this war, Putin is using food as a weapon with the ultimate goal of starving the world into submission. I recently returned from Ukraine, where I saw bombed out bridges, hospitals and churches. I saw ambulances bringing Ukrainian soldiers and civilians to clinics and train cars serving as surgical centers. I also saw evidence of deliberate campaign to permanently destroy and displace Ukraine's agricultural productivity and a campaign to bend the world to Putin's will by leveraging access to food for sanctions relief. The UN, including the World Food Program, must not be complicit in this campaign. They cannot continue to appease Russia in order to secure short-term partial compliance with international humanitarian obligations. It it is very disheartening when I hear uh, Americans, or for that matter, anyone else, particularly those who operate in the U.N., suggesting that Ukraine has any, any responsibility for this at all. This is all Putin's. It is all Russia's fault. Congress is doing its part. We provided billions of dollars in assistance to stop the war and address its humanitarian impact across Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America. Obviously, other donors also need to do more. In the meantime, we must do everything we can to stretch U.S. aid dollars further. This includes removing U.S. cargo preference requirements on food aid that have uh, outlived their purpose, drive up costs, and slow the delivery of life-saving food up to 12 months. There are only three bulk carriers left in the U.S. flagged fleet that carry food aid, none of which are, uh, are militarily useful. To suggest that maintaining U.S. cargo preference for food aid is somehow vital to maintaining U.S. maritime security is inaccurate at, at best. Last year alone, cargo preferences cost USAID an extra $80 million in transportation costs. Imagine all of the starving men, women, and children we could have reached with an additional $80 million. Hungry people can't eat transportation costs. It's time to end this brand of corporate welfare. I look forward to the testimony today and to working with my colleagues to find practical solutions to address the biggest global food security crisis of our time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Senator Risch. Before I introduce our uh, uh Fantastic panel. Let me just say we have very young staffers with us today. Uh, everybody's included. Uh, so, But uh, we welcome uh, the youngest staffers that Senator Murphy has brought uh, to assist him today. And uh, I understand uh, one of them is his niece. So welcome to the committee. New blood. New, blood, new has. blood, yes. yes. Senator yes, Murphy. he has been Senator Murphy's theme since he got here to the Senate. So, uh, <laughs> so welcome. Uh, It's my privilege uh, to welcome United States Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, back to the committee in her role. Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield leads efforts to advance U.S. interests of the United Nations in pursuit of peace and security. Uh, Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield is a veteran diplomat, having served our country for 35 years in the Foreign Service, including as the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, during which time she worked on many of the countries most impacted by the global food crisis today. So thank you, Ambassador, for joining us, and I appreciate our discussion, and including the need for lifting the housing cap so that we can attract the talent we need at the UN to, to meet the challenges uh, of Russia and China. Uh, we're also joined by another formidable diplomat, USAID Administrator Samantha Power. In her role, Administrator Power oversees USAID's international development and humanitarian efforts around the globe. She has had a robust public service career, previously serving as the United States Ambassador to the UN as well, as on the National Security Council, so we welcome you. Uh, our second panel of the day, after this panel, will uh, we'll welcome uh, the Executive Director of the World Food Program, David Beasley, who will be briefing the committee today. And Mr. Beasley has served in this role since 2017, leading the world's largest humanitarian organization in its critical efforts to combat hunger around the world. Previously, Mr. Beasley served as the Governor of South Carolina. So we welcome you, Governor. Thank you for coming to the committee. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And I want to emphasize in light of your affiliation with the United Nations that you are appearing voluntarily today before the committee as a courtesy to the committee, and we appreciate that. So with that, we'll begin uh, with um, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. Um, Your full statements will be included in the record. Uh, I'd ask you to summarize them in around five minutes or so because, as you can see from attendance, there are many members who will want to engage in a conversation with you. Ambassador.
2: Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Rich, distinguished committee members, thank you so much for the opportunity to testify here today with Administrator Power. Now, my mother was a cook. and. I think she was the best cook ever, as I'm sure most of you feel about your own moms. She shared her gift widely, and not just with our family. She, she'd cook for the entire community all at once. And even though we didn't have much, we made regular mass meals for anyone who was hungry. My mother did this for a simple reason. She believed no one should ever have to go hungry. Over the course of my career, I've seen what happens to people and communities who have hunger thrust upon them. I've looked into the gaunt eyes of children who are, as the doctors say, wasting, their rib bones poking out, their parents helpless to save them, and I've seen the child die right in front of me from malnutrition. Once you see something like that, you never forget it, and you keep it close to your heart. It is for that reason that when I first arrived at the UN in 2021 and assumed the presidency of the UN Security Council, I made our signature event that month focused on conflict-induced hunger. Because we knew that the vast majority of widespread hunger is man-made, and hunger is caused often intentionally by conflict. Then came Russia's brutal, illegal, and unprovoked further invasion into Ukraine. And you combine that with a cocktail of COVID-19, climate change, high energy prices, and pre-existing conflict, and the world's food crisis has become colossal. After all, Ukraine, as you noted, Senator, was the breadbasket for the developing world. And according to the World Bank, Some countries in Europe, the Middle East, Africa, Central Asia typically got up to 75% of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Russia has systematically sabotaged and destroyed Ukraine's farmland, equipment, and infrastructure and grain stockpiles. And Russia's naval blockade in the Black Sea and the threat of further naval attacks are currently preventing Ukraine crops from being exported to their destinations. We hope for that reason that the recent Ukraine Russia talks that are being facilitated by the UN in Istanbul with Turkey will yield results. In the meantime, we estimate that more than 20 million tons of grain are trapped in silos and ships at risk of rotting away. As long as Putin continues his war in Ukraine, millions and millions of people around the world won't know when or where they'll get their next meal. Countries in the Middle East and Africa will feel these effects most acutely. To make matters worse, severe heat and other extreme weather events are running running crops around the world. This is a five alarm emergency, and I've never seen a food security crisis like this in my career. This is the kind of problem that no one nation can solve alone. It's the kind of problem that requires serious and sustained multilateral cooperation. And again, that's why in May during our presidency, Secretary Blinken joined me in New York, and we hosted a day we hosted a series of days of action on food security, and we brought together our closest partners to craft a roadmap for global food security. A hundred countries have now signed on to a common picture of this crisis and a common agenda for addressing it. And since the ministerial, we've been working together with the UN and G7 and others to partner uh, to get more donors around the world. But Russia claims falsely that sanctions posed by the U.S. and allies are to blame for the global increase in food prices. But Russia knows full well, as you noted, that food and fertilizer are specifically excluded from U.N. sanctions. The good news is that we have the tools to stop hunger and alleviate suffering. And we have to use them and rally the world to do the same. And in this vein, we are sincerely grateful to Congress for providing the funding that you've already appropriated to respond to this crisis. I know that Administrator Power will speak in, in more depth about our efforts on the ground, but I want you to know that together, we will continue to rally the world to take on the global food security crisis through every multilateral channel that we have. Because as my mother believed to her bones, No child should have to go to bed hungry, and that is what we are working together to do. Thank you, and I'm honored to be here to take your questions.
0: Thank you very much. Administrator Power.
2: Thank you, Chairman.
3: Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and all the esteemed members of the committee. Thank you all for turning out today. After this hearing, I am going to be flying to the Horn of Africa. Uh, which is the epicenter of the unprecedented, unprecedented global food crisis that we face today. The crisis has many sources, as we know, record droughts and heat waves that are destroying crops and livelihoods, economic shocks from COVID-19 that have shuttered markets, fed inflation, and erased the fiscal space that many countries had to deal with emergencies. And of course, Vladimir Putin's vicious assault on Ukraine and his ongoing devastating use of food as a weapon of war. Putin's blockade of Ukrainian ports and his bombardment, his forces bombardment of farmland and storage facilities holding nearly 20 million tons of grain and maize hostage has sent what were already record food prices even higher. And the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China also restricted the export of fertilizer, actions that have led in many countries to a tripling of fertilizer prices, threatening not just today's harvests, but next year's as well. But since this crisis emerged, the United States, thanks in large part to the urgency and generosity shown by members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, is leading the world in a global response. Our fight against the global food security crisis has three main fronts. Rapidly distributing emergency humanitarian aid, making sustained investments in agricultural productivity, and concerted diplomacy of the kind Ambassador Thomas Greenfield has alluded to so that we marshal a global response to what is a global crisis. With regards to humanitarian aid, U.S. aid is on track to program more than $11 billion by the end of this fiscal year, $3.5 billion more than last year, which was itself a record amount. $5.7 billion of this funding will be directed to the World Food Program, and I know you'll be hearing from Executive Director Beasley today. But we know from decades of experience that hunger cannot be fought with food alone. In places where markets still function, we are distributing emergency cash assistance that can both feed people and boost local economies. We also know that in severe food crises, more people die from disease than hunger. So our assistance will also equip mobile health and nutrition teams to rapidly expand access to vaccines and to treat the severely ill. In drought conditions, clean water becomes incredibly scarce and the threat of waterborne diseases like cholera grows. So we are also needing to invest in providing water and sanitation kits. We are also providing assistance to revive severely malnourished children, including $200 million, which I announced this week, to UNICEF, which will dramatically expand the production and distribution of so-called RUTF, ready-to-use therapeutic foods, shelf-stable products that can help 90% of severely malnourished children survive, where 90% typically perish without treatment. That announcement that I made a couple days ago was immediately matched by $50 million from private donors, and we have set a goal of marshalling another $250 million from global sources in the next several months. These are just a few of the immediate responses we will mobilize. But as we know, crisis requires more than just short-term answers. It requires sustained investments. As Putin attempts to dismantle one of the world's largest bread baskets, it is imperative that we work to rebuild it. That is why yesterday I announced the launch of the Agri-Ukraine Initiative, $100 million that will provide seeds, fertilizer, financing, and equipment to Ukraine's farmers, will increase crop storage and export capacity in Ukraine and spark the eventual reconstruction of the country's agricultural sector. Around the world, the $760 million that Congress has provided from the latest supplemental will allow us to give poor farmers greater access to drought resistant seeds, apply precision fertilizer techniques that can both reduce waste and increase yields, and storage solutions that can prevent the 25 to 30% of food that is lost or wasted. Ultimately though, the US cannot solve this crisis alone, which is why the work of Ambassador Thomas Greenfield and Secretary Blinken is so vital. In 2016, the last time we saw a significant drought in the Horn of Africa, wealthy countries significantly stepped up to prevent the outbreak of a famine. Today, some of those same countries have spent just 8% of what they did then, despite a much more significant and devastating drought. The People's Republic of China to date has only supplied $3 million to the World Food Program. We have supplied $3.9 billion to the World Food Program. We need all countries to keep their food and agricultural markets open and avoid export bans on food and fertilizer. And we need relevant creditors to provide debt relief in restructuring to prevent broader economic and political collapse along the lines of that which Senator Risch spoke to. The United States Congress reflecting the great decency of the American people has helped mobilize an unprecedented response to an unprecedented crisis. But other governments, foundations, people in the private sector, and anyone else who can help must stand with us to meet this moment. With that, I look forward to taking your questions. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. We'll start around of five minutes. Uh, Let me start off uh, with Ambassador uh, Thomas Greenfield. Ambassador, as, as has been pointed out in the testimony, and as I said in my opening statement, there's 20 million tons of grain and vegetable oil and other essential food exports trapped in Ukrainian port silos and warehouses. It's ultimately a political crisis that requires an urgent solution. Can you give us an update on the negotiations occurring uh, at the UN between the UN, Russia, Ukraine, and Turkey uh, aimed at resuming black sea grain exports from Ukraine?
2: Uh, Yes, Senator. And uh, we have been uh, keeping up with those negotiations very, very closely. First and foremost, as all of you have noted, this is an issue that Russia could resolve immediately by stopping the war. And they have not. And they have caused this crisis. So as we look at what the UN is doing, we support their diplomatic efforts to find a solution to get that 20 million tons of Ukrainian grain uh, moved into the marketplace. Those discussions, uh, as I heard from the Secretary General, uh, late last uh, week. Uh, his assessment is that they are going well. Uh, we are hopeful that they continue to go well, and we will look forward to the results of the discussions and really press uh, the Russians to honor any commitments that they make during during those those discussions. We've in the meantime, continue to try to find other ways around getting uh, the wheat out until that agreement is actually well, signed. I, 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 you
0: well, know, I don't understand. I see that Putin went to Iran, met it with Raisi and Erdogan. I don't know that that's the venue that you're going to solve the global food crisis problem. Uh, it seems to me that you would sci- uh, s- solve it at the United Nations. So if there's a real will, uh, you know, this can happen uh, really relatively immediately. Um, what about the, the Chinese? I heard the number from you, Administrator. It's pretty shocking. Three million versus three point what?
3: Uh, sorry. Uh, Five point seven billion committed to WFP, three point nine billion already obligated. Three
0: point nine billion of the United States delivered for food insecurity. Three million from China. What role is China playing in trying to urge its friend, Putin, to unlock the potential? Do you see any action on their behalf at the UN?
2: Uh, I certainly have not. Uh, the Chinese are very closely aligned uh, with the Russians. They're supporting uh, the uh, Russian efforts in Ukraine. Uh, we have continued to press the Chinese to. Uh, uh, step away from what we see as a a, a really uh, bad relationship that they they have uh, established with the Russians in terms of supporting their activities in in Ukraine, and it goes against what the Chinese themselves have indicated is a priority, and that is protection of uh, the charter and uh, the sovereignty of, of borders.
0: Well. Uh- it's, it's, it seems to me we, we have to collectively do a better job of highlighting both here at home and across the world about what both Russia and China are doing in, in, in this regard. I mean, the Russian messaging and disinformation about the causes and solutions to food insecurity in Africa and the Middle East you know, are um, uh, pretty pervasive, and we do not counter that sufficiently at our own peril. Uh, and I hope the administration will be engaged in more proactively engaging that part of the, of the challenge uh, as well. I think it's, a, it's incredibly important. Uh, Administrative power. Congress recently approved more than $40 billion in emergency funding for Ukraine, which included billions uh, to tackle the secondary impact of the war on global food and security. It was uh, an effort to give the ability uh, to the administration to act swiftly and boldly, in the early stages of the crisis, understanding that time is of the essence. Um, Recognizing that the unprecedented levels of needs from the global food crisis will grow next year, what funding gaps uh, does USAID anticipate facing? Uh, Do you anticipate funding shortfalls? And what is our strategic plan for next year to address the ongoing crisis?
3: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, First, if I may just pick up on the the China exchange that you had with Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. Um, Just to note, it's not only not giving to these uh, public international organizations at scale, remotely commensurate to the crisis at hand, and I would note actually the last time China gave $34 million for a, a crisis, but a much lesser crisis than this. But another issue is the amount of debt that these countries that are so vulnerable right now have incurred principally, in many cases, bilaterally to China. And the amount of money that I was just in Zambia and Malawi that these countries spent on infrastructure that sadly doesn't currently exist uh, or on very high interest rates that are still now... um, uh, basically, impeding uh, the the ability of these governments uh, to borrow and and uh, to to put in place the kind of social safety nets that are needed right now, um, it is it is horrific. So, greater energy in that space as well from Beijing would make a huge difference for countries really finding themselves on the brink. Uh, with regard to your question, um, uh, just to say that again, we have. Um, Move very swiftly uh, to uh, take advantage of the incredible generosity that people up here have shown, and the American people have shown above all. Um, we are uh, proceeding in a manner that takes right now advantage of pre-existing awards. So, in a sense, with an organization like the WFP, we are plussing up uh, their pre-existing awards rather than doing, you know, having to to. Uh, start from scratch and do all the pre-award surveys and things that guard against uh, fraud, waste and abuse. Um, And so we are moving aggressively again through public international organizations. We would like to shift uh, over time to more local organizations particularly in Ukraine as those are the agents who have um, been able uh, to move very nimbly on the ground often into very, very hard to reach, hard to access areas. Um, I think we want to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, because the big UN agencies, of course, are the only organizations that can really provide food and cash at scale. Um, I think that seeing Europe, which has responded so heroically to Ukrainian needs, uh, meet some of the appeals in places uh, like the Horn of Africa, where right now we are Responsible for 86 percent of the WFP appeal, with the with the 1.3 billion I announced earlier this week for Kenya, Somalia, uh, and Ethiopia. That's not tenable. Uh, it, it absolutely has to be the case that uh, our friends step up uh, to deal with needs in Sub-Saharan Africa as well. We also think out of the president's trip to the Gulf. Uh, that there's a lot more room there, not only to to support funding needs in Yemen, which is in in a better place because there's a truce but still an abysmal place uh, because of the acute food needs. Uh, so there' are a whole host of donors that that really need to do far more. and if I could just make one last point, um, you know this is something also the Russian disinformation machine takes advantage of some some notion that donors are more interested in giving to Ukraine than to starving people in Sub-Saharan Africa, not of course making mention of the fact that the Russian Federation itself gives almost nothing to meet uh, food needs uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa or any place else, and in fact just creates food needs uh, with its brutality and and use of food as a weapon of war. Uh, But to to be able to show, again, that the democracies of the world show up uh, for vulnerable people in need while the authoritarians create those needs in the first place I think is very important.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Let me, before I turn to Senator Rich, let me just say, uh, from my view, China, this is not benign neglect on their behalf. This is uh, helping Russia's tactic uh, at the end of the day of using food as a weapon of war. China is responsible as well as Russia for allowing Russia to use food as a weapon of war, or the denial of food as a weapon of war. And, you know, Hunger leads to insecurity, which leads uh, to uh, people doing what they need to do in order to survive, Uh, and whether that be the mass movement of people to find a place where they can be fed or to turn to entities and organizations that will take their hunger and their anger uh, and use it uh, in, in violent ways, this is a real challenge to the organized civil society in terms of the, the, the repercussions that flow from the first instance from a humanitarian disaster to all the other elements. Senator Rich.
1: Well, Thank you. And I'd certainly like to associate myself with the remarks of the Chairman uh, in that uh, last uh, exchange. Ambassador Greenfield, uh, th- that uh, is a good segue into what I wanted to talk with you about, and that is the... Uh, the discussion we've had here today shows the tremendous disconnect between America and the other democracies in the world and the autocracies uh, and their, their seeming ambivalence at best to people starving all over the world and refusing to do anything about it. What, you know, you know, When that happens, you sit here and you wonder, what, what is this United Nations for anyway? I mean, uh, the United Nations, as, as the chairman has pointed out, is a place where these things should be resolved. And we, we just had reference to the fact that there's these negotiations going on that we all know about. Uh, in uh, it was done in Iran with uh, Turkey and in uh, uh, Russia. Um, what, where, where's the United Nations on this? It seems that they're they're just absent on it. And uh, I'm not I'm not saying this is your fault by any stretch. It's the 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 organization itself. A lot of us have had reservations for a long time about what, what they spend a lot of money, uh, but what gets done? Uh,
2: thank you for that question. I, I understand your frustration, uh, Senator, uh, but I will say that the uh, United Nations has been proactively engaged in these negoci- negotiations uh, that have taken place in Istanbul, uh, and they have they were responsible for bringing the parties together to bring, for bringing the Ukrainians, the Russians, and the Turks uh, together. The Iranians were never involved in any of these discussions, so what we see happening now in Iran is very much separate from uh, the engagement that the UN was responsible for putting together. I will also say that in New York, we are able to galvanize uh, countries from all over the world We brought 141 countries uh, to the table to condemn uh, Russia's actions. And I can tell you that the Russians were making every effort to intimidate and press those countries uh, away from uh, supporting uh, this General Assembly uh, resolution. And their disinformation campaign is extraordinarily effective, which is why we have to ramp up our efforts To engage with these countries and get the information uh, out that will counter uh, the Russian uh, narrative. Uh, I've had a series of what I have referred to as listening tours with various regions, with Africa, with Latin America, uh, with countries, the ASEAN countries, with the Middle East, to put on the table the the, the the facts of what is happening on the ground and making sure that they understand that Russia is responsible for what is happening. Uh, it is not Ukraine's fault. Uh, it is not sanctions. It is their brutal war uh, against Ukraine.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that, and, and uh, it... Uh you guys did good work getting the number of people to condemn uh, what what amazes me is sitting here as an outsider and looking at it, that there, that there were even a handful of people that would uh, would get behind the russians that that, that absolutely amazes me and and uh it's all well and good that uh, that vote was as lopsided as it was but then what i mean the un is supposed to exist to to resolve this stuff. And uh, uh, when you have a vote that lopsided, we know what's right, we know what's wrong, but nothing's happened. I mean, uh, uh, certainly uh, NATO uh, is a strong force. Uh, NATO's uh, responded and, uh, and come together and is stronger than it's ever been. But the UN, again, just seems to be absent on the thing. I mean, uh, talk is wonderful, but uh, doing something on the ground is so much more important, and it's just it's not happening.
2: Uh, again, looking at the fact that the UN has been responsible for feeding more than 10 million people in uh, with our support and with your generosity as well as that from the rest of the, uh, the world, but I commend... Uh, the World Food Program and others who have really taken uh, a proactive uh, approach to responding to the humanitarian crisis, uh, and we can't, we could not do that without uh, the United Nations. Uh, but I'm not here to. Uh, defend every action. We know that the organization uh, has its flaws, and that is why I sit every day in New York and, and make every effort to uh, work with uh, other countries to uh, reform the organization. Well,
1: thank you. I, I appreciate that. And administrative Power, I, I think that uh, those statistics that you rolled out about what we're doing and what China's doing is something that really isn't out there in the, in the general media. And I think all of us uh, ought to be pressing that. Uh, to, I, I think that better than anything demonstrates the cavalier, nonchalant, careless attitude that uh, China and, and the other uh, people that are complicit with Russia in this have. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you. Senator Gordon.
4: Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank both of our witnesses for their extraordinary leadership at the United Nations and USAID. Uh, First, I I just want to underscore the point that the United States and the Congress has been responsive to the food insecurity issues. We have provided substantial amount of, of funding, as you pointed out. We don't see the commensurate response by our allies internationally. And I would first underscore the point that we need to develop a unified strategy to get the type of help internationally to deal with these issues that have been provided by the United States. And I say that because both of you have underscored the point that Russia has weaponized food. We shouldn't be surprised. We know their asymmetric arsenal that they've used before. They've used energy as a coercive uh, act, form to try to get countries to do certain things. They've used misinformation. Uh, they have funded extreme groups. They do all these things in order to advance their cause. So we shouldn't be surprised that they would weaponize food. So I guess my question to both of you is, is how are we developing a war-type strategy to counter Russia's use of food as a weapon I recognize that the United Nations plays a critical role, the World Food Program plays a critical role within the United Nations, USAID plays a direct role also, but we have uh, non-governmental partners that help us. Uh, I'm proud of the the Catholic Relief Services, which is headquartered in in, in Maryland, the role that they play. So can you tell me how you are developing a strategy to recognize this is not just a traditional problem of food insecurity, which is an area we have to deal with, but we have to be mindful that we're working in a war environment with Russia using this as a tactic. How do we organize our allies around the world to respond in a way that's commensurate with the problem Russia is creating?
2: Uh, Let me start and uh, just to say that we really have worked hard to mobilize a broad coalition of uh, allies and countries using uh, diplomacy. It started in New York with uh, Secretary Blinken uh, calling uh, his first ministerial to bring the world together in May, where he laid out very, very clearly uh, the Russian objective uh, and the false narrative that the Russians have been uh, pushing forward. A hundred countries then signed on. Uh, to the roadmap that we put together, we extended that diplomacy in uh, in the G seven, in the G uh, twenty, and as well uh, as uh, during uh, the president's uh, recent visit to to the Middle East. Uh, Samantha, as uh, you as you heard, is going out to Africa uh, tonight. I'm leaving. Um, in about 10 days to do the same thing, to engage with these countries to help them to come to grips with the disinformation campaign uh, that the uh, that the Russians have uh, initiated. And I think they're not being fooled. And then we're galvanizing uh, more donors to make contributions. Let me, so just, we were,
4: let me interrupt for a moment because mm-hmm. I, I, I'm pleased that you're visiting the sites that need attention and need to understand the causes. but and need to know the tools that are available to help. My concern is that we have our so-called ally countries that are part of our alliance with, in our support for Ukraine. I don't know, necessarily see them recognizing the same degree that food is being used as a weapon of war. So you know, my concern is, uh, do we have a strategy to engage our supportive countries to be more participatory in dealing with the challenges that we have and recognizing this is a Putin strategy and therefore needs, as, as we provide weapons and to defend Ukraine, as we provide direct support, we also need to be providing help in regards to the problems Russia is creating uh, with food insecurity.
3: Could I give a few examples, maybe, Linda? Um, so, uh, first, I, I You know, again, I I think we're all in in violent agreement uh, that the response needs to be more multilateralized, that those who are lagging need to step up. Uh, It's it's something that Ambassador Thomas Greenfield is working every day in New York, that Secretary Blinken is working around the world. I will say, Senator, of the European countries, again, they have opened their doors to the refugees. That is not without cost. Uh, European Commission President uh, van der Leyen has just also announced more than $6 billion toward reconstruction, so they're also thinking ahead. And if I could answer your question in a slightly different way, uh, but in parallel to, to Linda's comments, I think one of the answers to your questions is, a, is comes down to the word resilience. And what we are doing, what we USAID on the ground, thanks to the infusion of resources from you, but also our pre-existing uh, programs, which we're heading in this direction anyway, is building Ukraine's capacity not to be dependent, for example, on everything from the Russian export market uh, to Russia's actions in the Black Sea. We are now uh, working to ensure that they have the barges to use the rivers, that they're able to uh, modernize their rail lines so those can connect with Europe. Uh, This isn't to say that we anticipate there being a Black Sea crisis every year for the rest of time. This war has to end. Putin has to end it. But it does mean that diversification is really important. In Africa, it's the same issue. Linda knows well from all of her time there the dependence that so many countries have, for example, on Russian fertilizer. It's the number one fertilizer producer, exporter in the world. And that that is not a reliable source of fertilizer. So we are seeking to diversify and also to ensure that there's in Africa production of fertilizer as well as food sovereignty in countries that are too uh,
5: import dependent.
4: Make Black Sea security part of our strategy. Senator Shaheen.
5: Ah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I uh, I want to follow up a little bit on Senator um, Cardin's questions about the UN and what more can be done and whether there's any appetite at the U.N. to take on Putin and to basically take the grain out of Ukraine, assuming that the Ukrainians agree, and get it out to the rest of the world. I, th- I think we're, we're not only losing the battle in terms of feeding the people who need it, but we're also losing the information war because what Putin is doing is convincing um, people all over the world that we're the reason that millions are um, food insecure. And so what what can we do to take a more um, robust approach to how we deal with Vladimir Putin at the UN? And is there any willingness on the part of uh, the Secretary General or um, – our allies there to really make him more of an issue here. Uh,
2: Thank you. And I think we have, the UN has, and members have uh, taken a very proactive approach to uh, condemning Putin, to calling uh, Putin out, to isolating Russia in in New York. Uh, We kicked them off of the Human Rights Council. Uh, They have tried to gain... uh, uh, regain a seat on ECOSOC. Uh, they have not been able to win that vote. Uh, so we've succeeded in, in convincing enough countries to vote against them. Uh, so we are succeeding in, in exposing uh, their behavior and, and uh, condemning their actions in the, uh, in the Ukraine. So I would, I would say that we, um, we can do more uh, I certainly hear uh, the, your frustrations. Same frustration I feel uh, every day when I have to put so much uh, effort into engaging with countries to help them to understand how important it is uh, that we not l- allow Russia to get away with uh, what they're doing in in Ukraine. And that effort is is a daily effort on the part of me and and my staff in New York, but also. Across the uh, the entire administration, uh, from the president uh, to uh, to the secretary, as well as well as uh, others like uh, the administrator who are engaging with these countries, to ensure that they understand that we are all fighting the same fight, and they have to be part of it.
5: Um, Senator Cardin also talked about the importance of the Black Sea. Senator Romney and I just introduced legislation to require the administration to develop an interagency strategy around the Black Sea. Um, It was pointed out to me by one of uh, the representatives of one of our allies that we would have been better off had we had um, US and other allied ships in the Black Sea region when Putin um, invaded Ukraine, that it would have been harder for him to, um, to so totally Uh, control what's happening in the Black Sea. So can you both speak to why that would be important and how you see that kind of a strategy helping us as we look at the future and and ensure that we aren't in this situation again in another five or ten years?
2: We we share your goals in terms of making sure that the Black Sea remains uh, open, and I know that the Department of State and the administration is looking forward to engaging with you on the legislation and how uh, we might move forward to uh, pursue those goals, but I do uh, agree with you that we absolutely have to be, uh, have a strategy and be more proactive in ensuring that this does not happen again in the future. And maybe just if
3: I could build on uh, this point about resilience, I mean, one of the things that the Ukrainians have been doing, um, in addition to uh, planting, wearing flak jackets, and having demining equipment, so that they can, you know, uh, have a harvest also for for next season, um, is they've been hustling in a whole bunch of ingenious ways to try to get the food that is trapped out through other means while uh, the negotiations that the UN is undertaking and some of the other uh, options that are being considered, uh, you know, are are pursued. And just the stats on this, uh, Senator, I think are are pretty staggering. 200,000 metric tons of trapped, uh, you know, produce and crops moved in March. Six hundred thousand. They found ways through road, rail, barges, rivers, Danube, you know, ports, port in Romania, you know, uh, up through up to the Baltics, etc. Two hundred thousand in March. Six hundred thousand metric tons uh, in April. One point one million metric tons in May, and then just around two million metric tons in June. Now we're talking about five million that we're trying to chip away at here, and every, as others have indicated, every metric ton or or fraction of metric ton that doesn't reach its desired end state is driving up prices and potentially contributing to the hunger crisis that we face. Uh, But we are very uh, focused with the European Union, who have been doing a huge amount to create these so-called solidarity lanes, uh, to ease the the customs flow, the border uh, checkpoints, uh, to secure insurance both for what moves in the ways that they're able to move, but also critically, the insurance that's going to be able to, uh, that's going to be needed once the demining has occurred, if some deal has been struck, or if the Ukrainians uh, decide uh, to move uh, and and the private sector decide to move uh, the the trapped uh, grains in in other means. Uh, but there's you know a lot of infrastructure investments that we are making now collectively in to deal with this crisis. They're going to put. The Ukraine in such a stronger position to be integrated into the European Union as they pursue that path uh, toward accession so and then the o- only other thing i 'd a- add is that I know there there is some consideration of changing the law to allow u s soldiers to train uh, Ukrainian forces in demining and certainly it would seem given the amount of demining that 's going to be needed uh, to get the Black Sea up and running again that that kind of um, adjustment uh, to uh, to the law uh, would be would be warranted.
5: Well, thank you both very much for all of your efforts, and Governor Beasley, thank you as well. Senator Romney. Chairman.
6: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to uh, both the ambassador and the administrator for the work that you're doing. Um, uh, is Russia trying to starve the world? I mean, are they uh, intent on causing pain on, on causing pain in Egypt and Lebanon and throughout North Africa and the Middle East, I mean, is this is this part of their intent, or are they simply intending to starve uh, Ukraine, uh, but uh, and, and willing to ignore the fact that what they're doing is in starving Ukraine is also starving the world? Is this? Do you have a sense of what their intent is, what they what they're thinking?
2: I. I I, I can't speak for what, uh, what uh, is going on in Putin's mind, but I think at the start of this, they thought they were going to have a quick war, bring Ukraine to their knees in two weeks, and have them waving the white flag, and that would be the end of it. And uh, that failed. And so they're continuing this effort to starve the people of Ukraine, and in the process, starve the rest of the world, and they don't care. Uh, which is why it is so important uh, that we have gotten the support, uh, bipartisan support from this uh, uh, Congress uh, to provide for people in the rest of the world. Uh, what the Russians are now doing is blaming us, that we, our sanctions are responsible for what is happening in the rest of the world, when in fact there are no sanctions on. Uh, on their agricultural products, there are no sanctions on their fertilizer. They can move their their agricultural products. They can move their wheat if they want it uh, to do it. Uh, but they would prefer to blame uh, to to blame the rest of the world, uh, thinking that that will get them more support uh, from the world. And I think they they failed.
6: But Ambassador. I- why is it they are so effective at, at spreading lies, and we're so terribly ineffective at telling the truth and having the world understand what's going on? I would think the leaders of Egypt and Lebanon and other places that have seen astronomic increases in prices would be yelling about what Russia is doing. I, I don't see that. Why are we so uh, incapable of, of making sure the world understands Russia's malevolence the impact they're having on the world and creating, if you will, global pressure, not just from the nations of the West, but global pressure on Russia. Why are we so ineffective?
2: I I wouldn't say we're ineffective. I think we certainly have to ramp up our efforts. But this is something that we all work on every single day to counter uh, Russia's disinformation. We do it in the United Nations and in meetings, and we do it in our travels around around the world. And I think countries are hearing it. Uh, they're hearing it, but they're also dealing with other issues. They're dealing with not only Russia's disinformation, they're dealing with Russia's intimidation. Uh, we know that when we had to vote in the UN that the Russians actually sent written correspondence to countries to say, if you vote uh, against us, uh, we will no longer, uh, this will affect our, our long-term uh, relationship. So these countries are dealing with these other efforts, but I think, again, to have 141 countries condemn Russia, they, they are resisting that pressure, uh, and they do uh, understand that uh, Russia is responsible for, for this war. Now, that doesn't mean Russia doesn't have his friends. Uh, the four or five countries that voted with them Uh, Including China, Uh, and uh, the the friends are are, their friends are always there for them, but they're few and far between.
6: Ambassador Power, uh, what other nations are stepping in to make sure that the uh, the food crisis being created by Russia and its uh, blockade, if you will, on Ukraine, uh, is uh, is. in in some respects, getting some relief. Uh, Is India stepping up to the extent they should? Are other parts of the world uh, making the kinds of uh, uh, efforts they should? And are we as a nation stepping in, we in Canada and others that have uh, bountiful uh, agricultural resources?
3: Uh, Thank you, Senator. And if I may just pick up on your exchange with Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, I would just note that the Belt and Road Initiative and China's investments throughout sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, the Pacific, have gotten a lot of attention. I do not think that the RT penetration and the Russian disinformation media machine have received the same attention, nor I think would we say that we are resourcing our information efforts as a country as we did during the Cold War, for example, or not even close to how they resource them, uh, you know that 's not the only answer again we're, We are uh, you know blasting our message out as many places as we can and I think the, probably the only reason putin 's in those negotiations with the u n and Turkey right now is the number of russian countries that, or excuse me the number of African countries that privately not publicly in the way that we do. Uh, have uh, either you know paid trips uh, to Moscow to appeal for that for those grains to be released so the prices go down or those or those or that wheat arrives, um, uh, and and I think that that pressure has brought him to the table. Whether it'll be enough to to you know bring him to actually allow the grains I, go. I, I, full,
6: uh, I, I fully just want, want to say I fully agree with you that that we are not paying the kind of attention or devoting the kind of resources to communicating the truth to the world uh, as Russia is spending to. Uh, to communicate lie. lies. Thank
3: yeah, you. I agree completely. To your question, just um, uh, on on uh, sort of division of labor and and so forth, I would say you mentioned India specifically, which hasn't come up yet at the hearing. Uh, India has been very responsive to the complete economic collapse in Sri Lanka, uh, extending uh, grants and mainly loans uh, to a government that of course fell, uh, but now a new government that is in in, uh, in great economic peril. That is a country that has uh, defaulted on its debt payments for the first time in its history. Uh, and it's probably just the first of uh, at least several and maybe many governments that are likely to fall by virtue of these higher prices, particularly fuel prices as we head into winter. Um, with regard to some of what we've been talking about, I, I did want to call out uh, uh, and commend uh, some of the very discreet efforts on uh, actually dealing with the trapping of Ukrainian uh, grains. Um, Japan has chipped in $23 million to help the Ukrainians buy storage bags. Uh, the, European, the European Commission has provided uh, direct cash grants to, to farmers, around $53 million. Uh, The U.K., uh, which has dramatically cut, unfortunately, its foreign assistance budgets at the worst possible time, but has contributed $12 million to help rebuild the railways that are being attacked, which helps get the food out. So these kind of modest efforts, but as I mentioned, I think, before you got here, uh, if you look at at the response, for example, to the potential famine in the Horn of Africa... Other countries, our friends, who stepped up the last time there was a very severe drought, are right now, many of them, at about 8% of what they funded before. Now, some of that is because they are funding so generously inside Ukraine, and, of course, to Ukrainians who are coming into Europe. But this is being, this, this uh, burden, also this privilege of helping people in their hour of need, <clears> is being borne very disproportionately by
7: the United States right now. Senator Coons. Um, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank uh, you and the ranking member of this committee uh, for holding a full committee hearing uh, on this remarkable, um, grave, global crisis in food security. Uh, And the attendance here and your engagement as senior administration representatives is um, important. Um, I thought it was striking at the outset, um, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, when you said this is, you've never seen a food crisis like this in your career. Uh, And I expect that Administrative Power and Mr. Beasley, would both agree with you. We first met in Liberia. Uh, you've been to tough places. You know what food crisis looks like. Um, and it is striking to me that at exactly this moment, when we have a bitter cocktail coming together of a conflict and COVID and climate, um, that the United States is stepping up in a massive way. Uh, each of the descriptions Administrator Power just gave of this ally, this ally, this ally. It was billions from the United States, millions from this ally and partner. And one of the things I'm most concerned about is the, the lack of engagement and presence by the PRC, yes, by our Gulf partners, absolutely, um, and the, the ways in which our European partners and allies are providing, yes, support for refugees, but modest support um, for the development, the urgent food security and development needs of sub-Saharan Africa. Administrator Power, thank you uh, for outlining in your speech at CSIS the actions we need to take in response to this food security emergency and I'm encouraged by the plan for a 1.3 billion billion dollar surge for the Horn of Africa where you're about to travel as well as the 200 million in ready-to-use therapeutic foods which are used for children in starvation but I'd be interested in hearing concisely where you see funding gaps and what more we can do to mobilize the donor community both through the UN and through USAID and I'll also be asking Mr. Beasley, about uh, his particular brand of uh, effective and forceful personal engagement uh, with those who still sit on the sidelines.
3: Uh, thank you. Well, let me just say that I think President Biden uh, took advantage of his trip uh, uh, to, to, to the Middle East uh, to engage the Saudis, uh, the Emiratis, the Qataris. I think there's a lot of room for growth uh, in terms of those contributions, and particularly in fulfilling pledges that have been made publicly but not yet delivered upon. And you know, money is fungible uh, for an organization like the World Food Program. And so if, for example, uh, Gulf countries were to concentrate their resources, for example, on Yemen, That would free up resources for other countries to be able to use in the Horn of Africa or in South Sudan uh, and and so forth. Um, So, too, it has to be said, again, that European commitments and contributions inside Ukraine are very important. And uh, it's very important that the UN appeals for inside Ukraine be met with the same... Kind of urgency uh, and the
7: same
3: uh, same kind of resources as the needs of refugees that passed into Europe have been met with a, a
7: number of us are eager to work with you in coordination on pressing our closest allies and partners to meet their commitments um, and to be a part of this global moment uh, i 'm struck ambassador uh, by um, the ang- the anger, frankly, the breadth and depth of anger in the developing world uh, at what many <clears throat> of our long-standing partners, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, see as an abandonment of their um, public health and humanitarian and hunger needs um, in the face of what has been year after year after year of drought. Uh, I'd be interested in um, in your thoughts on. Both um, what we can most do to help with opening up the Black Sea ports. I met with the Secretary General recently. I'm encouraged the UN is at the table. Um, And I frankly think we should focus on this like it is the Berlin Airlift, that it could be an opportunity to show the UN's engagement and relevance in a critical moment. Uh, But I'm also wondering um, where you see the UN going we are behind in our commitments, we are billions of dollars behind in our dues, obligations, our commitments to the UN, although we are billions ahead in our contributions and support to UNICEF and UNHCR and World Food Program, how does it hurt our standing at the UN when we are billions behind in our commitments? Uh,
2: Thank you so much for for that question, uh, Senator, uh, because that is really the crux of the uh, challenge that I face uh, in New York every single uh, day as we are uh, put in a position of, of having to compete uh, with our adversaries on uh, you know, being able to influence the, the UN action, putting staff who are capable uh, in the United Nations. We're reminded uh, publicly Uh, and attempted to shame, but uh, we we don't feel shame uh, that we are, um, uh, that we have such uh, a large debt, uh, such large uh, arrears uh, in the United Nations. Uh, So we really do have to address uh, that issue if we're able, uh, if we're going to be able to compete. Does that create uh, an opening for
7: countries like China and Russia to influence the UN system despite our significant leadership in our contribution?
2: Every gap that we leave is an opening for the Chinese. Uh, they flow into every open space uh, that, uh, that we leave. So that means staffing in the UN. It means funding for junior professional officers. These are young people like we have around in this room who we'd like to see uh, working at the United Nations, and the way they get in is through a professional program that's funded by their government. The Chinese have more than 400, uh, if not more, of those young people inside the United Nations. We, we can't you. compete.
7: As we work on the SFOPS appropriations bill this year, we will keep both of those things in mind. I'm, I'm mindful I'm out of time, and many of my colleagues have gone over. I'll just conclude by saying, if I can, Administrator Power, I am interested in hearing from you about our investment in food storage. Um, to help the Ukrainians, but frankly also globally. And in programming, you're launching around food waste. Um, We don't have any extra food to waste in this world. And then last, I want to continue engaging with you, Ambassador, on the SDRs, on the IMF and the ways in which international financial institutions can help stabilize some of the countries we're most concerned about. But if the Chinese keep piling on the debt and we don't fund – the Development Finance Corporation, as our alternative that is more transparent and more sustainable, we will continue to go in the wrong direction in the developing world. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. I am mindful that the chair has been very lenient in this process because a good amount of the time has been taken over by the witnesses in response. Uh, but we have a vote at 1130. There are members who uh, have de- have the desire to see the Ukrainian First Lady speak, so which I think is just happening about now. So, I would just remind everybody to try, in respect to their fellow colleagues, try to uh, meet uh, succinct questions with a succinct answer. Senator Haggerty,
8: your points well taken, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for that preface, and thanks to our witnesses for being here. Uh, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield has articulated this is the worst uh, food crisis that she's seen in her long career. I've been talking about this since March. Uh, the, the the concerns that we have about a global food crisis. And uh, Ambassador Power, you have articulated a number of activities that are underway that you're you're pursuing to try to address uh, the crisis as it exists. Um, It seems to me that we should be doing everything in our power to address this global food crisis. When I talk with farmers in my home state of Tennessee, they're very clear about what's happening to them there. And I think about American agribusiness. It's a great industry. We can be a great exporter and relieve a lot of the pain that's being felt around the world. But what's happening here at home? Diesel prices are through the roof. Farmers are having a very tough time making ends meet economically. Fertilizer prices, we've talked about, are through the roof. Energy is a major input into fertilizer manufacturing. Uh, My view and my, my, my question to you is, shouldn't we be doing everything that we can, including getting back into the oil and gas business and stopping the war on American energy so that we can bring those prices down, we can make the economics work better here in America to solve the world's crises.
3: Thank you, Senator. And um, let me just say that the, especially given our last exchange at a prior hearing on on fertilizer um, just seeing firsthand the good uh, that our farmer to farmer program has done and all the training that we have provided uh, that the the fertilizer and other sort of seed inputs that the United States has provided drawing on research in states represented by by many of you. Uh, I mean, this is mission critical on the ground, um, and uh, you know we would we will not be able uh, to feed the world's people unless we can get fertilizer into people's hands. I was I'm going to get to your question, but no. just being in no, Zambia, I agree with you
8: fully. But it seems to me that we should be doing everything in our power right now, given the size of the crisis that's been articulated.
3: Yeah, well, I we think what doing you're everything seeing we can to
8: bring prices down, and the war on the oil and gas industry is taking prices the exact wrong direction. And I'm I'm interested to hear you. Answer, I understand. Do you believe that we should get back into the oil and gas business, bring these costs down and make farmers more productive here?
3: What I believe is that we are seeing – not only what I believe, what I see is that a number of countries uh, that have uh, large fertilizer production capacity are trying to expand that capacity. It is challenging because of uh, the energy prices, uh, but more supply is going to mean lower prices. We're already seeing that in the in the wheat space as prices have come down just a little bit over the last few weeks. So, but you are seeing countries where we have missions and that had been making uh, transition uh, to renewables, you know, having to pause some of the work that they were doing. Uh, For example, I met yesterday with the Moldovan prime minister. I think we'll see some of you. And they have a big reforestation agenda, but because Putin has turned off the gas, they are needing... Uh, now to cut down much more timber than they had intended to this year. So you are certainly seeing trade-offs around the world uh, being experienced. I think you've
8: chosen a good term, uh, trade-offs. And the trade-offs that are happening here in America are basically putting Putin in power, uh, giving him a lot more leverage because he's now the source of oil and gas. When we were a net energy exporter just two years ago, and I see the war on oil and gas making us weaker as a nation, uh, making us less capable of supporting our allies. And I would again implore uh, every one of the policymakers in this administration to look at this and the trade-offs that we're making uh, and and take seriously into account that the transition that has been forced upon America is costing us in many, many ways, whether it be the food crisis that we could be alleviating, uh, whether it be our national security, uh, whether it be emboldening and empowering and funding Putin, all of these concerns are very real. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
9: Thank you. Um, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. Fine public servants, there's a phrase in the Ukrainian language, holodomor, that was created in the 1930s. It is a combination of two words, one meaning hunger, one meaning plague. In the current Ukrainian dictionary, this is the definition of the phrase, artificial hunger organized on a vast scale by a criminal regime against a country's population That's from a 2004 dictionary. The phrase comes, as you both know, from the forced famine that was visited upon Ukrainians and others by Stalin in 1932 and 1933. We're in the 90th anniversary of that catastrophe. The English language doesn't have a word for that because we've never lived under that. I think the Irish language may have a word for that because Irish have lived under it. But we haven't lived under it, but there is a word for it. And this Congress has recognized the Holodomor and many um, other nations have as a forced genocide using hunger as an artificial weapon. Vladimir Putin has aims to be a great Russian leader. He probably thinks of himself in the Peter the Great category, but the real analogy is Stalin. And in this instance, he's probably surpassing Stalin because the death toll from the hunger that he has Forcing on Ukrainians is not just felt within Ukraine. The estimates of the Holomor in the 1930s is probably conservative estimates about three million Ukrainians and folks in other Russian Republicans as well died, but the effects of it were not felt so broadly in the globe. And so we've seen this before. Um, we've seen it before, and we have to be vigorous about it. Um, I want to switch gears in a second, but many of my colleagues have kind of focused on the disinformation side of Russia. One of you indicated that while they are engaging in disinformation, you don't think the world is being fooled. But they're saying some things that make me wonder if they're being fooled um, in... uh, Let's see here. Let me find this. June 3... The African Union Chair and Senegalese President Macky Sall had a meeting with Vladimir Putin and said, quote, the crisis and sanctions create serious problems for weak economies, seeming to put the the problem on the sanctions and the crisis as if it's kind of a, you know, natural phenomenon. Um, I'm glad you're both going to be in Africa. I hope you can get particularly African nations that are suffering the most or or more than many parts of the world, I hope you can get those nations to just speak the truth. You know, it's one thing to speak the truth to power, but how about speaking the truth to evil? You know, it would seem like you would be willing to speak the truth to evil. I understand administrator power when they're dependent on Russia for fertilizer, et cetera, et cetera, that it's easy for me to ask that. But when leaders in regions of the world who are so suffering because of this, Uh, deflect blame, i got to believe it's an intentional deflection and not a naive deflection, and I hope you'll challenge him on that. The title of the hearing is Global Food Security Crisis, and we've really focused on the effect of the Ukrainian illegal war on the world. I want to give you a chance just to talk about in a minute and 40 seconds what is the U.S. doing to deal with the climate realities of the global food security crisis. One of our Democratic colleagues, Senator Tester, whose family has farmed in Montana for Four generations, and he's farmed the land for 44 years, told us yesterday in a luncheon that he was normally bringing in about 28,000 bushels in a harvest every year, and unless it was 1,600, um, and it's likely to be that this year. And so what, what is the US doing, USAID? You mentioned resilience. What are we doing at the UN to try to deal with the climate emergency component of a long-term global food insecurity challenge?
3: I can start briefly um, and just say uh, I, I had an exchange earlier where I st- with Senator Carden where I stressed the word resilience, and our Feed the Future program for years, even though not branded as a climate program, has been about getting to farmers and trying to get at scale to farmers drought-resistant seeds that have been developed in labs in this country or all around the world that have been funded by USAID since the last walloping food crisis uh, at scale occurred in, you know, 2007-2008, and Feed the Future was created uh, by you all and by President Obama thereafter. So that's part of the answer. It's also just a sad fact that you see embedded in the growing emergency needs and the growing Bureau of Humanitarian Affairs budget, thanks to you all, but just the, it's exponential uh and it's not only because of conflict although it doesn't help that there are 35 conflicts on the continent of africa um but it is for circumstances like what we're experiencing right now in the horn of africa which is for the first time in history the fourth straight dry rainy season and we are expecting the meteorologists are expecting a fifth so the fourth never happened before in history and they're already looking ahead and expecting low rainfall for the fifth that is, that is approaching. So we the prepare initiative that President Biden has announced, the more, again, that we can resource uh, developing countries are angry. One of the reasons that President Saul even, I think, was receptive uh, in some, some fashion, at least to make the statement that you, you describe, is, you know the countries are now clamoring for losses and damages. And we are trying to do adaptation programming that helps them withstand floods, droughts, through emergency assistance, but also to things that allow them to continue to grow their agricultural sectors against the odds.
9: Much more to talk about in this space, but I'm over time. I'll yield back. Thanks. Thank you. Senator Murphy.
10: Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. It's really hard in one hearing to categorize all the ways in which the Russians are using starvation as a deliberate tactic, not just in Ukraine, but all over the world. And, um, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, um, I wanted to sneak in two questions one for you and one for Ambassador Power. Um, to you, I wanted to talk about the crisis in Syria. Um, Today, WFP estimates you've got um, about 12 million people who are food insecure, starving. That's an increase from last year, it's hard to believe, but it's getting worse inside Syria, not better. Um, And yet, during the last several years, uh, we of course have gone from four crossings to bring humanitarian aid down to only one crossing. And there's only one reason for that, um, and that is the Russians' decision to try to use starvation as a tool uh, to benefit Bashar al-Assad. Um, you were able to win a 6 months extension of the one crossing, but that's all that Russia will agree to. So just tell us very briefly what the um, consequences are um, going from four crossings to one crossing and now having only a handful of months certainty that you'll even have that available for humanitarian relief getting into Syria.
2: Uh, Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, I was in the region uh, earlier in the year, and I saw the desperation not just among the Syrians, but the desperation of the humanitarian workers who will see the impact of this directly in January when this border crossing uh, closes in the middle of of winter. Uh, What we expect will start to happen is more people will start to move. Uh, people will not sit and allow themselves and their children to starve to death. So we will have to uh, possibly prepare for more migrations of people across the border and support to those people uh, where where they're sitting. Uh, the Rus- we worked desperately to get this border crossing uh, extended for uh, a year. Uh, the Russians were obstructionists, as they always have been. Uh, we spoke to the NGOs. Who said yes? Twelve months is what we uh, is the minimum we need, uh, but six months is better than nothing, and that's why we came away with uh, with the six months that uh, you just spoke about. But we're still working uh, in in uh, the Security Council uh, to try to get that extended uh, at the end of the six month period and get more border crossings open because the situation, the humanitarian situation, is increasing. Not decreasing
10: well we appreciate your herculean work trying to keep that crossing open tell us how we can continue to to help Um, ambassador power wanted to ask you to drill down a little bit more on the commitments that we need from our gulf allies Um, So very glad to see that in coordination with the president's visit, the Saudis announced that they would be uh, depositing $2 billion into Yemen's central bank. That's really important because the food crisis is exacerbated by the broader economic crisis inside Yemen, and that funding will help to free up some capital and resources for Yemeni families and public employees to buy food. Um, But every single year, the Saudis and the Emiratis in particular make these big public pledges as to how much they are going to support food assistance and humanitarian aid in Yemen. And then every single year it is like pulling teeth to get both of these supposed allies to deliver on those pledges. So uh, the Saudis have pledged $300 million for food aid and humanitarian relief inside Yemen so far this year, but so far they have delivered about 85 million. The Emiratis have delivered 23 million I mean, the Emiratis sneeze $23 million every morning when they wake up, and yet we can't get more than $23 million to support humanitarian relief. Um, How critical is it for the Gulf countries that are participants in the war inside Yemen um, to be active partners in delivering aid to what continues to be the world's worst humanitarian disaster? Um, We're doing the most, but it seems that the participants in the war um, need to be at least meeting our commitment.
3: Uh, Thank you, yes, Senator. Uh, Really can't put it better than you have put it, um, but would only start by saying Uh, the truce needs to be preserved, because the only thing worse uh, than the food conditions pending right now in Yemen, and and David Beasley can speak to this uh, imminently, is that food crisis plus the resumption of the war. And that's, I think, why the diplomacy that President Biden did on his trip to the Gulf around the Yemen war and extending the truce is so, so very important. I would add that um, Qatar in the the past uh, has made, uh, fairly important contributions uh, to previous crises in Somalia. So one of the things that I will do in the wake of my, my trip to the Horn here in the coming days uh, is engage with them. We, we have a conversation underway, but I think that's an area uh, for growth as well. And I would say again, the Saudis uh, have provided uh, some capital and liquidity I think to the Egyptians to help uh, shoulder this crisis. But just as I indicated in my opening, You know, we've got to pursue emergency aid at the same time we make these longer-term investments. And so it really isn't enough just to provide loans, even though that's an incredibly important piece of the puzzle. Organizations like the World Food Program and other international NGOs and other UN agencies need big money just to keep people alive so that we can then – Uh, again, look at the kind of political reforms and economic reforms and growing the economy and growing the agricultural sector that we know is in the long term the only way that we're not going to avoid coming back and having hearings like this every season.
10: And and lastly, the ceasefire is so important. Glad the administration made that a priority, but the ceasefire has to be a mechanism to a political dialogue that eventually gets um, a a return of the Yemeni government to the Yemeni people. Um, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, Just for the members'
0: uh, awareness, I'm going to call Senator Young, then Senator Van Hollen, and then I'm going to call Governor Beasley, who has a hard stop at at 12 o'clock, and we invited him here, and I also want to hear as one of the largest entities to provide uh, food relief to the world. So, uh, Senator Young.
11: Administrator Power, good to see you. Uh, Last week, USAID announced that uh, it was distributing $4 billion uh, to Ukraine for, uh, you know, additional direct budgetary support. That covers, as I understand it, only three weeks of the uh, government's current budget, um, deficit, that is. Uh, today, the government, uh, it's, it's reported, is, is further considering declaring default on its international debt obligations. I know this is you know, a concern of yours, uh, certainly a concern of mine. So in, in your view, is the government of Ukraine's financial situation su- sustainable if the war continues for months or even years?
3: Uh, thank you, Senator, um, and first, thank you for the resources to be able to be in a position to provide direct budget support. Uh, we've provided three tranches of, of that support uh, so far with another very large tranche on the way. Um, I met with Madam Zelensky yesterday. This was issue number one on her mind as, you know, the latest person to engage us on the, the uh fiscal crisis that they face. It's a very, very difficult situation, and it's why there is such urgency around putting sufficient, out of my lane, but military pressure on the Russian Federation so that uh, negotiations can go further than they have up to this point. It's why the conversation we were just having about other donors Uh, particularly, you know, questions of whether the Europeans um, can come forward with comparable direct budget support alongside all the other contributions they're making in other sectors. That's key, isn't it? It is key and then questions uh, around the World Bank and the IMF and others and whether other uh, actors can be brought to the scene. I mean you've allocated $8.5 billion in direct budget support if we do that all at once, that's that's uh, you know not going to bode well for for a matter of weeks or months from now. So,
11: so how does how does European support uh, collectively compare to American support right now
3: in the area of direct budget support spe- specifically? Yes, but my understanding, but I'd want to revert uh, is that the European Commission has either provided or committed five hundred million dollars in direct budget support. But again that is on top of also sheltering no questions asked six million refugees with all the social service education health and, and so forth and all the other emergency humanitarian assistance which is of a very different order uh, that they provide to to international organizations uh, along with us okay
11: well it, it sounds like it it's sounds like good. the administration <laughs> owes us a little more on that you know what what you, you see as we head into the future in terms of whether or not, you know, Ukraine's financial situation is sustainable, so that I can approach my, my constituents and, and say, listen, this is going to be a long haul. It's going to be very expensive. And these are equities that we'll have to...
3: It's very fair. ...we'll,
11: we'll have to weigh. Otherwise, because I can tell you, back home in Indiana, um, our hearts go out to the Ukrainians, and uh, there's a certain understanding of the economic implications, but people are also weary. They're weary after Iraq and Afghanistan. They understand the economy is is um, precarious right now, and um, this is the sentiment from the heartland, and uh, our policy needs to be connected to those individuals, otherwise we're going to lose support and uh, make impulsive decisions so I'll look forward to working with you on that. I, I, I don't feel like we've really fully answered the question, and it's, I don't feel like you've evaded the question, <laughs> but hilarious. I don't feel like we fully answered it. So let's continue this conversation a very serious way with the Europeans as well, right? Um, does USAID and the Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance in particular have the staffing and capacity to manage the supplemental funding that it has received, Administrator?
3: Um, I think we would not have been able to uh, obligate over $11 billion for fiscal year 2022, uh, which is 40% more than last year, which broke a record last year, if we could not manage. That said, um, when I first came up to to this committee and and to our appropriators, I made a fervent appeal uh, to address staff depletion, particularly among contracting officers. We are surging contracting officers to be able to manage the flow, uh, you know, these big awards, but also smaller awards okay. we want more local organizations.
11: Thank you. I'm just going gonna, gonna to lob a question to Ambassador Thomas Greenfield because I, I do want to get to this, at least get the question on the record. So, um, And it, it, it pertains to uh, the Black Sea. Uh, ability to deliver food. I know that was asked earlier. I want to know if there are additional options to help get food into and out of Ukraine. Okay. And so if you if you can say yes, there are.
2: There, there, there are additional options that are being pursued. They will never be uh, big enough to deal with the quantity of food. There's 20 million tons sitting uh, to be moved out of the Black Sea, We've been able to move about 2.5 million tons uh, through uh, land and rail uh, crossings, and we're trying to expand that, as Ambassador Powell has mentioned earlier, uh, and contributing to uh, the European Union uh, effort uh, to do that to fix the the rails. But it can't account for the uh, the amount of food that will be required to move outside of Ukraine.
12: Okay, we'll follow up. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you. Senator Van Halen. Uh Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank both of you for your, your service. Um, and Governor Beasley, it's great to see you as well. Just to pick up on that final point of my colleague, Senator Young, I think the testimony we've received uh, in a number of hearings, including the Appropriations Committee, has been exactly as you said, uh, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, which is that We are trying to be creative in getting some of that grain out, but the reality is when you've got 20 million tons, we've got to get it ultimately out uh, through the Black Sea. Uh, And I just want to echo what my colleagues have said, and which you all agree with, which is we need to do a much better job of letting the world know that Russia is using food as a weapon of war. And it's actually doing a double-edged sword uh, here because they are withholding grain, corn, and wheat from Ukraine but as I understand it, Russia is expecting a bumper wheat crop of over 40 million tons themselves. Um, Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield, that, that, those shipments are going out through the Black Sea, are they not?
2: Russian um, uh, agricultural products are not being blocked. They're not shipping them out as rapidly as they could for a number of reasons of their own making. Uh, but it 's not because uh, because of sanctions, so we 're working on the Black Sea option to help get Ukrainian food out. The Russians could be moving their food and th- and that 's a message that I think we need to be uh, really uh, highlighting much more loudly
12: right. I think that again, they are um, they 're raising pressure on the word f- on, on food supplies and prices by blocking the Ukrainian grain, they also have this storage of grain, which they're then using uh, to pressure countries. Let me, uh, Senator Kain, I heard referenced uh, the statement by the uh, president of Senegal after he met with Putin, sort of buying into the sanctions narrative. Are you seeing at the UN Russia's effective use of this uh, false narrative in terms of, you know, bringing, uh, getting countries to, to vote their way or abstain?
2: Uh, I am absolutely seeing the Russians use their false narrative to pressure countries. They have not succeeded, however, in getting those countries in large numbers to vote with them. So in the Security Council vote that we had uh, recently on Syria, uh, 13 countries supported uh, the resolution. Russia vetoed. China abstained. Uh, In the General Assembly, we get large numbers of votes, but Russia is using pressure tactics. Uh, More than 17 African countries uh, abstain uh, for fear of of, uh, uh, Russian uh, uh, intimidation tactics against them. So we have to be conscious of that. Uh, These countries are desperate. They are afraid. Uh, But I think they also uh, understand what is happening, and we just, again... Uh, have to work with them to address the, those issues. Uh, I've had a conversation with President Macky Sall. I'm having uh, uh, listening sessions with the Africans to hear their concerns, but also to address their concerns.
12: Well, I appreciate it. I, I know that you're working hard to make sure the truth gets out at the UN and, and make sure that, you know, people vote not based on misinformation, uh, but based on, um, uh, on principle. So let me, very briefly, because I do have a question for Administrator Power, Um, in terms of these discussions that are ongoing with the UN, Turkey, Russia, and Ukraine, uh, you know, there have been some reports that are heralding a near time, a a possible breakthrough. What is your current assessment of the prospects of those?
2: I'm I'm hopeful, and as I heard uh, Ambassador Power say, hope doesn't always get us what we need. Uh, so we're very supportive of the, of the process because this is a process that will allow 20 million tons of Ukrainian grain uh, to get out to, to the market. Uh, so we're su- encouraging uh, the UN in these efforts, but we will also be watching the Russians and hold them accountable to, for any agreement that they uh, should make uh, with, uh, with the UN. Uh, we, we thought we might even hear that an announcement would happen today. Uh, so far, it hasn't happened.
12: All right, um, of Power, thank you for all your efforts in getting the emergency uh, funds, including the food assistance uh, out the door. I know it's a, a big task. Um, the World Food Program is obviously a trusted partner. I guess we'll hear later about their capacity to absorb more. How do you think about the distribution b- between the World Food Program versus other trusted NGO partners? Uh, Senator Card mentioned the Catholic Relief Services has got its home in, in Baltimore. How do you think about that in terms of the, the goal, which is to get food where it's needed as quickly as possible?
3: Are, are, is the question specifically in Ukraine or globally as well?
12: Well, Globally, but re- m- focusing primarily on what's happening as a result of what's happen- of the Ukraine conflict.
3: Okay. Um, thank you. And I would just note, per your exchange with Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, that in addition to having a bumper crop, is already also stealing Ukrainian grain. So it's not just blockading, it's actually stealing and selling grain that Ukrainian farmers uh, planted, harvested, uh, more than $100 million worth at, the very, at, at, at least, uh, which, uh, you know, is outrageous. In every respect, if
0: if you could uh, administer succinctly answer this question, because I need to get to Governor Beasley.
3: Indeed. Um, So let me say that we are already uh, funding forty-six local partners uh, in Ukraine. I think that's very important to over time, and I think David Beasley agrees. We've had a lot of conversations about that to transition to you know, the Ukrainian Red Cross, um, other local organizations that can carry this work on when the international community hopefully, uh, you know, will be able to leave at some point. Um, There are also, we can't just focus only on food. You know, obviously the World Health Organization, given the destruction of health facilities, very important. International NGOs like CRS, uh, Mercy Corps, IRC, and others are are critical partners on the ground. I think what is unique about the World Food Program um, is their ability to scale uh, speedily. I know there were frustrations at the beginning because they were not operating in Ukraine when the war started, but if you look at, and David will speak to this, just the amount of reach that WFP has and the ability to get cash and food to people quickly, uh, it, it, there's nothing quite like it. But over time, we'll have we'll need to round out and make sure that all other sectors are, are covered and that we have something sustainable.
12: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you.
0: With the thanks of the committee to both of you for both your work and your testimony here today. You are now excused. We look forward to continuing to engage you. Governor Beasley, come on up. Uh, your full statement will be included in the record without objection. Uh, I know you have a hard stop at 12. Hopefully there's a little little flexibility, but uh, give us, a, having heard members' questions and the testimony that has taken place, any insights you can give us as the largest provider, uh, as an entity, uh, would be very helpful. The floor is yours.
13: Senator, thank you, and I know we're pressed for time, so let me just uh, dispense with any statement and just really talk very direct about the situation. I think everyone is gravely concerned. Uh, When I took this role five years ago, over five years ago, there were only 80 million people as we would say, marching to starvation. That's different than chronic hunger. You were citing that number at the beginning of 800 and some odd million people. That number went from 80 to 135 right before COVID, driven by man-made conflict along with climate shocks. COVID comes along, creates economic devastation to nations all around the world, particularly the poorest of the poor. That number then went from 135 million to 276 million million people. So you see over time it's getting more fragile, particularly in the poorest of the poor countries. Well, then comes Ethiopia, then Afghanistan. And when you think it can't get worse, the breadbasket of the world, a nation that produces enough food, to feed four hundred million people is taken out of the market, so the devastation is real it 's going to be long sustaining it 's also going to be immediate as we are already seeing pricing uh, in commodity markets spi- spiking and skyrocketing. The number of two hundred and seventy six million is now jumped to three hundred and forty five million people that don 't know where that next meal is coming from unprecedented numbers, but the more concerning number senator is within that are 50 million people knocking on famine's door in 45 countries. And if you want to know which 45 countries very well could be destabilized in addition to famine and mass migration, those are the 45 countries to start with immediately. Now, when we compound the fact that grains can't get out of Ukraine, coupled with the droughts, the heat that we're facing, along with fertilizer pricing, fuel costs, and food costs, you begin to see we've got two looming problems ahead. First is going to be food pricing problem over the next six to 12 months among the poorest of the poor. Uh, And even Americans are feeling the pressure as we know. But number two, I'm very concerned next year that we may have on top of that, a food availability problem. And that is going to be a crisis beyond anything we have seen in our lifetime. In 2007 and eight, when inflation and food pricing Hit then. We had 48 nations of civil unrest, riots, and protests. The situation today is much, much worse, and we're already beginning to see destabilization take place in many countries. Sri Lanka, we saw what happened in Mali. Put that back together. Chad, Burkina Faso. We're seeing protests and riots in Kenya, uh, Pakistan, Peru, Indonesia, and I could go on and on. Senator... What the United States has done in stepping up is absolutely extraordinary. I know the Republicans and Democrats seem to be fighting on about everything else, but by God, the American people can be proud of the United States Senate, the United States House, Republicans and Democrats coming together on food security around the world. It's it's absolutely setting the stage for the rest of the world to follow. Unfortunately, the rest of the world is not stepping up like it should. Uh, As we've heard, China has only given us $3 million. The Gulf states with unprecedented oil pricing, which is compounding the food crisis, should be stepping up in ways beyond anything we've seen before. I think Samantha, uh, Administrator Power, mentioned the fact that at least if they could contribute to the humanitarian crisis in their own neighborhood like Yemen and Syria, and Jordan, Lebanon, Afghanistan, it would take immense pressure off of the traditional international donors uh, that are struggling right now. Uh, I can get into the details of that as we need. I know we're short on time. There's a lot more I would like to say, but let me stop it right there, Senator, and answer any questions. Well, well thank that you. you.
0: Thank you. That's a very succinct, but nonetheless powerful impact. Let me ask you, you say food uh, availability. Are you suggesting that uh, there will be uh, there will not be enough food production in order to meet the demand?
13: Yes, sir. Uh, let me get into the weeds of that just a little bit in Africa where there's 1.4 billion people the fertilizer crisis along with the droughts and all of the uh, fuel costs and other issues uh, the African Development Bank projected just recently that you could see a 20% reduction which I think is it could be very low uh, in food production inside Africa Africa we support about sixty-nine, seventy million people inside Africa. When you look at the African agricultural community, seventy percent of the people in Africa are fed by thirty-three million smallholder farms. So, if those thirty-three smallholder farms don't get the fertilizer they need, uh, you can only imagine. That's 980 million people inside Africa that depend on smallholder farms and the fertilizer to reach them. And we're working on these issues as we speak. And so imagine we're only reaching 65 million. You can begin to do the numbers and realize we've got a catastrophe looming before us. And this is why these grains inside from Russia and Ukraine need to be moving quickly. And we're working on that as well. I hope we have a solution on the Odessa ports in the next uh, couple of days. Now, let me add on top of this. I just left India yesterday meeting with the Indian leadership, and India had anticipated substantial uh, opportunities to work with us on pr- providing uh, grain. You cannot believe what the heat has done in India just in the past uh, couple of months. Literally has devastated their wheat production. So we now have that uh, on standby because obviously they got to feed Indians first. We understand that. But this heat is impacting farmers in the United States. It's impacting, impacting Horn of Africa, Western Africa, Eastern Africa, and all the places around the world. So we very well could have an availability of food problem next year, Senator. Now, while I was sitting here, I just got a text from the president of Niger. He said they're actually getting more rain right now uh, in the Sahel than they were anticipating. I do hope that that will relieve some of the pressure, particularly in Mali, Niger, Chad, Burkina Faso, and Mauritania. But Let me ask you, you this. See. In
0: South Sudan, 8.3 million people are experiencing severe food insecurity, including two million children under the age of five facing acute malnutrition. There have been a number of uh, announcements by the World Food Program about where they have had to cut rations in places like South Sudan. So, uh, how does the World Food Program make decisions about which countries to fund and at what levels? Uh, does World Food Program ever cut rations in one
13: uh, response to increase them in another? Senator, What the way our system works, we work with the donor nations who direct, generally speaking, which countries and the prioritization. Uh, unfortunately, because of the lack of funds that uh, we were faced with in the last few months, we've been having to take food from the hungry children to give to the starving children, which is a situation that none of us like to be in. Fortunately, because the United States Senate and the U.S. House stepped up with unprecedented funding, that's going to alleviate the pressure, allowing us to move the ration supply back up for people, whether it's in South Sudan or wherever the case may be. But we work with USAID. For example, uh, we requested, uh, in this particular package of supplemental appropriations about of five billion, we requested about 2.6, uh, 2.8 billion to begin immediate movement. We've received, uh, as of today, I think about 1.4 billion. Out of the 68 countries we've received, out of that uh, two 1.4 billion, that will go to 31 countries. That still leaves about 37 countries, 36 countries that we've not received additional supplemental appropriations, uh, appropriations far. Now, what we're trying to do is working with Germany, the EU, and other donor nations. Uh, I was just in Japan and Korea trying to convince their parliament to step up with more money to fill in those gaps. Obviously, we would like to see the United States do as much as possible, but where there are gaps, as I'm talking with Germany, the European Union, member states, uh, and other donor nations that have great alliance, uh, particularly with the United States, uh, to fill those gaps.
1: Mm -hmm. Senator Rush. I, I know you've got uh, a hard stop, uh, and we've got a vote too. And I, I want to give a shot to Senator Coons. Let, let me just say this. Uh, David, you're a great spokesman uh, for America and for these kinds of things. I would urge you uh, in the strongest possible terms to not only talk about these issues. They're huge issues. They, they, uh, uh, the, the world you live in is... Uh, it, it, I, I don't know how you do it. How you get up every morning and deal with this. But I, I think uh, uh, when you speak, every time you speak you really ought to underscore uh, the, one of the major problems here, and that is Russia. Th- this is their fault. Uh, it's no fault of the Ukraine uh, or, or any other country. Uh, Russia made this decision by itself, and that decision is going to cause a starvation of millions of people on this planet. It's not right. It's not fair. And uh, and humanity ought to recognize uh, this atrocity for what it is. And I, I hope you'll underscore that uh, every time you speak about this. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
13: Senator, if you'll go back on the record, uh, it was a few weeks after the initial invasion and in, in the February that I went on record and actually went to Odessa. I've been in Ukraine multiple times, but I went to the Odessa port uh, and met with the military officials as well as the leaders in that particular area, making it very clear that these ports have to be open for the world. This is not just a Ukrainian matter. Obviously, As you understand the economy of the Ukraine, 40 to 50% of their economy is based on export. So you can imagine when you have the port shut down, what that's going to do inside Ukraine, not to mention what it's going to do uh, outside Ukraine. 50% of the grain we buy around the world comes from inside Ukraine. Our operational cost now is over $70 million more per month because of what we are facing. In this world crisis because of what Russia did. I began tweeting, actually, and messaging uh, about Putin personally. I said, look, Mr. Putin, regardless of your views on Ukraine, if you don't open up these ports, it's a declaration on war of war against food security. If you want to bring famine to the rest of the world, keep that port shut. Otherwise, open up the port. Have some degree of heart for the rest of the world. And so I met with Lavrov last week and talked quite extensively about this matter. I said, look, it's not complicated. Let's get these ports open. Let's get the supplies moving. So we're out there messaging. We'll continue to do so. Uh, I sort of have a rule of thumb. That's one of the advantages of not wanting a job in the United Nations. You can say what you think, what you believe, and let the chips fall
1: where they may, Senator. Well, I appreciate that. And, I, and, and again, I, I think you've succinctly said uh, what uh, Putin knows and that is he's closed the Odessa ports and the and, the, and those uh, ports on the Black Bleared Sea simple. knowingly, willfully, intentionally, with malice aforethought, with a black and abandoned heart, and with the full intention of murdering people by starvation. It's awful. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
7: Senator Coons. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member. David, uh, it is so great to be with you. Um, you have been a, a fierce, faithful, effective leader of the World Food Programme, uh, I know it is the men and women around the world uh, in whose name uh, you accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, but I think it's important to emphasize that um, the whole world community recognizes the urgent need for the World Food Program. Uh, and I know that you've carried a message personally to world leaders um, to demand that others deliver the support that the United States does for the World Food Program uh, and to call out, um, as uh, the chair and ranking we're just engaging with you on, of the aggression by Russia that has shut the Black Sea ports of Ukraine and that threatens starvation to millions of others. I'm going to make a point you don't need to respond to, but I think is worth making. Uh, When I led a delegation to Rome and we had the opportunity to meet with the head of the FAO, who just happens to be a PRC Chinese national, and we met with you and your team, and I pressed the head of the FAO on Russia's responsibility for this food crisis because of its aggression in Ukraine. We cannot get a similarly clear and forceful answer Um, that I can think of no more stark example of the consequences of our failing to pay our arrears at the UN and then creating an opening uh, for PRC leadership on different multilateral agencies and entities of the United Nations. Uh, Let me ask something that I think you should answer, (laughs) um, which is the operational challenges and the costs. The ranking member referenced uh, cargo preference uh, in his opening. I just I am concerned about skyrocketing costs operationally because of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. What are you seeing around the world? How can we help you with the increasing costs you're seeing? And how have your cash-based interventions helped in some ways circumvent the operating costs of delivering millions of tons of food around the world?
13: I think the greater flexibility we can get from the United States government, which helps, in my opinion, sway – uh, European nations and other nations to give us greater flexibility how we can use our funds of the different modalities. Uh, I know when Senator Corker, when I arrived in this role, Senator Corker used to, to really hit me hard about cash-based transfers and at first I wasn't quite so sure, but once I realized the mechanisms and the systems that we had in place and seeing the support that we did have from the Democrats and Republicans uh, in the United States Congress, we've actually moved our cash-based system Senator up to now over $2 billion. So like in places in Ukraine where there is some degree of market operating, if we can bring in cash, it actually helps local economies. One of the things that we're doing with cash-based transfers is helping stimulate local economies inside Africa uh, as opposed to just bringing food in from the outside. And that helps smallholder farmers, and it particularly helps women because we actually empower women uh, to take more responsibility in the villages in the communities and particularly in in uh, countries where women are oppressed
7: let me just make sure I am being specific you don't actually deliver cash you use um, essentially credit cards well, EBT we, systems we do multiple things more transparency and accountability I have visited yeah. in the BDBD refugee camp in uh, northwestern Uganda exactly that kind of a setting the surrounding community women are now bringing uh, food, uh, for sale to folks who are refugees because and so they welcome refugees because they're a source of uh, revenue and income for the local farmers and it doesn't uh, crash the local agricultural uh, economy I've also visited in South Sudan a refugee camp where World Food Program was airdropping uh, food into a place where there was no other food available there was no other way to keep starving people uh, alive uh, what just last if I could target you back to what do you see in terms of the increased costs of delivering yeah. food uh and what can we do to help be most relevant and helpful in that?
13: The increased cost of delivering food now is now is now over 70, almost 74 million dollars more, Senator, per month. So our expense is now over eight hundred and fifty million dollars this year. And I I actually think it's gonna get even higher I don't see things uh, curbing uh, we're having four times the cost of shipping you can, as you can imagine shipping costs fuel costs fertilizer costs all these different factors are quite unprecedented and so we would need 850 to 900 million dollars additional dollars just to stay even like last year we reached 130 million people this year we plan to reach 152 million and then the question is how much is it going to cost in buying food and so as, as senator I Menendez, as you were alluding to earlier we had to cut rations because of lack of money and the the amount of money it's now costing to acquire the same amount of food is going up so high we're having to cut rations from 100% to 75% to 50% to for example in Yemen we've actually cut uh now we go scale back up because of your appropriation but, but but we got gaps 13 million people for example that we feed in Yemen Uh, 5 million, we had already cut down to 50%, and those were the 5 million in IPC level 4, which is knocking on FAMA's door. 8 million in IPC level 3, uh, we had cut down to 33% of the rations they need. We hope to begin to scale that up, but this is where the Gulf states need to step up. But this increase in cost is forcing us to decrease the rations per child, per person. And as I said, in some places, we're actually taking food from a hungry child to give to a starving child. And that's why the United States leadership is saving lives and going to stabilize countries around the world. But we've got to get more countries to step up in in, in ways like the
7: United States has. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. Uh, uh, two quick takeaways. I'm concerned about your statements about food availability. That uh, That is uh, that is a incredibly compounding factor. Yes, sir. And secondly, the statement of the 40-some-odd countries that could easily transition into collapsed uh, nations. Uh, Not only is hunger a human tragedy, but it is also the breeding grounds uh, for mass migration, uh, which causes conflict, uh, and at the same time uh, to avail those who seek for purposes like terrorist actors to avail themselves of recruiting those who, in fact, are facing hunger. And if that's my way of solving my family's problem, I'm afraid that uh, there are those who will take it. So the world needs to step up in its own interest uh, as well as a humanitarian response. So with the thanks of the committee for your testimony, we got you close to your uh, drop-dead time. So, uh, but very much thank you for you and your colleagues' work. This record of this hearing will remain open to the close of business on tomorrow, Thursday, July 21st. Please ensure records, uh, questions for the record uh, are offered by that time. And this hearing is adjourned.